Blog Talk Radio. Hey there, Dr. Ross Green here. Coming to you live on our first radio program for parents of this broadcast year. I'm delighted that uh, you are able to join us or listen in. Um, We haven't done this in about three months, and we've got a few changes to the program uh, that we hope will make people happy and make the program even more interesting for people. Uh, We're going to have a few. uh, First, we're saying goodbye to Susie, our parent who's been doing the programs with us for a very long time. Susie, we thank you for your many, many years of uh, pitching in on the program and providing us with your wisdom as a parent who's had a behaviorally challenging kid. Um, But we've got some new voices on uh, starting this year, including someone who's on the program with us already, Kim Hopkins-Betts our Director of Outreach at Lives in the Balance, and she's going to be not only joining us on today's program. Kim, that's you, yes. You're here, yes. That's me. Hi. Welcome to the program. And, of course, um, Kim, number one, is going to be joining us on every program, but also going to be doing some of these programs on her own just because of my travel schedule. Um, But we're also going to have two parents from the B team, uh, which is the Lives in the Balance Facebook group. And, Kim, the first thing we want you to do is tell us a little bit about the B team so that people can know about it. But secondly, Stella and Jen, I believe, will be joining us shortly, unless they got confused about the time zone. But, Kim, maybe we can start before they get on the line with us. And we've got a ton of emails that have accumulated over the course of the summer um, that we will be responding to today. If it's just you and me, it'll be just you and me. But we believe that Stella and Jen will be joining in on us. But tell us a little bit about the B team, first of all, so that maybe there's some people who listen to the program who haven't heard of it, can learn about it, and then we'll turn our attention to some emails if we aren't joined by Stella and Jen today. Go ahead. Sure. Um, Well, first off, hoping that everybody knows that we have a Facebook page, uh, Lives in the Balance, where we post lots of tips about the model and other things of interest. And then from there, we run a couple of different groups, The B team is by far our most active group, um, and it is a place where parents of behaviorally challenging kids can get together and ask questions and get support um, for learning how to do the model better, uh, when it's not going well, to share successes, which is always fun to read about. There's folks in there who have been doing the model for years. There's folks in there who are brand new and have just found us and everyone in between. A very active group, very supportive group, a very unique place on the Internet for sure. And um, you can find us by searching the B team, and that's just the the letter B. Uh, And the actual link to it is the B team, L-I-T-B. And we had to add that on the end because something else already had just the B teams. So if you're in Facebook, search for the B team, or you can do backslash the B team, L-I-T-B, and find us there. 
Nice. And those Facebook yeah. groups, especially the B team, um, extremely active, and I know that people find them to be extremely helpful. Um, a very nice thing that you and your uh, co-administrators do. Um, I cannot thank Stella and Jennifer and Penny enough for their assistance in there. They're our moderators, and, um, yeah, it's, it's a very, very special community. Um, as long as you are new to the program, how about you also give us a little bit of a background uh, about your work with parents, how you found the CPS model, what you've been doing with the CPS model all along, and then we will turn our attention to emails. By the way, and this is something Susie always reminded me to do, the call-in number is 347-994-2981. This, uh, the callers always take priority on this program, so if you have a question that you want to make sure we answer on the program, call in that number again, 347-994-2981. And as Susie would always say, press 1. Kim, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to the CPS model and what you've been doing with it all these years. Sure. Um, I'm a social worker, and about almost 15 years ago now, I was working in an organization that had a handful of residential programs, group homes, two therapeutic day schools, foster, foster homes, and independent living as well, uh, mainly adolescents between the ages of 13 and 22. And we were thinking about a few things. We had a lot of restraints going on. We restrained kids about 400 times a year. Um, I myself had my nose broken in a restraint and uh, ribs bruised and just realizing that this wasn't getting the job done. This, this was not the way to go. Um, the other thing that was happening, we were in the state of Massachusetts and Massachusetts was recontracting their services and they wanted providers to pick an evidence-based portable model, meaning that it was something that didn't just work while the kid was in care with us, but when the kid would leave us and maybe go back home or go back to their home school, that they would continue to do well. And that was something we had noticed was not happening, that when kids stepped down back to the community or to a less restrictive level of care, they were falling apart. And so um, a colleague of mine who worked with me in Mass and moved up in Maine and uh, had heard you speak, said, oh, you should go check this guy out. You need some CEUs for your license. And you were speaking in Freeport at the Harris Secret Inn. And I said, sure. And to be quite honest, I said, well, if he's not good, I'm just going to go shopping because it's a great shopping area. And, um, and I was hooked 20 minutes in, and I knew that this is what my organization needed to do. I was surprised that I was finding this. Uh, I thought I was just going to get some CEUs for my license. So um, that began our implementation, and it took a long time. Um, and I stuck around for a couple years of it. We had reduced restraints by 75%, and there were some other nice indicators coming, uh, but we still had a long way to go. But me personally, I was working a lot and on call a lot and decided I was getting married um, to make a switch. And that's when I came to work uh, for you, Dr. Green, and first worked on the Sanford project and uh, working with schools and some parents and other community providers in Sanford. And that was really exciting and was able to bring the model to uh, K through 12 there um, and do some other interesting kinds of work over there. And ever since it's been about teaching the model 
um, in all different settings, and it's been very exciting. And I now have two kids, and I always say in training these days that I'm the parent that is praised for my seven-year-old daughter's behavior, and teachers ask me if they can clone her, and they are not going to be saying about that about my son, <laughs> who's 21 months, and um, definitely has some lagging skills and that are very evident. So I get quite a bit of practice at home now these days. So. Fantastic. I'm learning things about you that I didn't know just by having you on the program. Oh, really? Well, that's funny because I've known you a long time. <laughs> yeah. It looks I think like we're a not little over 10 get... years. Right. It looks like we're not going to get Stella and Jen on today's program, but we'll see if I can ping them and see what's going on with them. Maybe I gave them the wrong number. Who knows? But let's start with an email, shall we? Sure. Here we go. This one says, I recently read Explosive Child, and I wanted to thank you, Dr. Green, because for years I couldn't understand my son, and your book has finally given me some insight and clarity. As you mentioned in the book, these types of children are often aggressive toward their siblings and sometimes require a never-together period. I know that physical behavior is plan A. She's referring to this as basket A, which tells me that this might be a dated version of the book, but was wondering how you recommend it also be enforceable. In other words, if my son, seven and a half years old, cannot be with his siblings, how can I force him to be separate? If I tell him he needs to be separated from his siblings because he's being unsafe with them, Forcing him to go to his room or anywhere else for that matter requires me to physically force him or lock his door from the outside, which, as you can imagine, is a recipe for a major meltdown. He has managed to kick a door, a hole in his door on occasions like this. Would love to hear your thoughts on enforcing lack of physical aggression. Um, thanks so much for all you have helped me with so far. All right. So, first of all, as you can tell, I like to read between the lines. And between the lines, by referring to plan A, which is what imposition of adult solutions has been called for the past, I don't know, eight to ten years maybe, maybe longer, um, tells me that you are reading a dated version of The Explosive Child. And over the last 15 years, one of the most important things that has evolved about the model is it is now almost totally oriented toward being proactive. We don't want parents or educators or anybody else finding themselves uh, in the heat of the moment. And so uh, 10 to 15 years ago, there was no such thing called as the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. It didn't exist um, and a lot of the orientation of the model was more toward emergent or heat-of-the-moment situations, no more. While there are always going to be heat-of-the-moment situations with a behaviorally challenging kid, we can reduce them to very few if we are figuring out what a kid's lagging skills are ahead of time and if we figure out what expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting ahead of time. And in the CPS model, those unmet expectations are referred to as unsolved problems. Thus, 
the single-sided, single sheet of paper on the Lives in the Balance website called the Assessment of Lagging Skills and Unsolved Problems, or ALSIP. What the ALSIP does is it helps make um, challenging episodes highly predictable so that those unmet expectations, unsolved problems, can be solved proactively. And so a lot of your email is about what to do in the heat of the moment. We don't want you to be in the heat of the moment. We want you to be solving problems proactively so that you don't find yourself in the heat of the moment. Now, your email also refers to physicalressive behavior. One of the other things that has evolved over time with the model is that we're really not all that interested in behavior. We get it. The behaviors are really um, difficult to deal with. But these days we're referring to behavior as the signal, the fever. The way a child is communicating, I'm stuck. There are expectations I'm having difficulty meeting. And when I have difficulty meeting those expectations, I exhibit behaviors. Often those behaviors are aggressive, but we don't want to be talking about aggressive behavior. And we don't want to be talking about the heat of the moment. We want to be talking about the problems that are causing those behaviors, and we want to be solving those problems proactively. So those are just some of the things that I'm reading through the lines on in your email. But now let's get to the specific issue that you're referring to in your email. Namely, one of the things that I've done over the years with some families, especially in situations where it became clear either there's too many problems to solve at the moment for um, these two siblings, for us to be able to actually trust them being in the same room with each other, or these siblings get um, difficult in their interactions with each other so easily and so often when they're together that we might want to talk with them about not being together or what you're referring to in your email as a never-together period. But it's not the goal of the not-together period to um, only be a period, and it's not the goal to only do it when things are hot. It's actually the goal to have them not be together so as to prevent opportunities for challenges to occur. Now, in the meantime, we are busy trying to solve the problems that are making it difficult for them to be together. But in some families, especially in the scenarios that I just described, it's actually sometimes a good idea for us to have the siblings be deprived of the opportunity to be together in the first place. So in some families, Number one, it's a really effective way to dramatically reduce challenging episodes by depriving kids of the opportunity for those episodes to occur in the first place. In some families, that means that for some period of time, and by the way, this doesn't last forever, uh, families are not going to be eating dinner together. They're not going to be going to the amusement park together. They're not going to be in the same car together. Mom takes one sibling to a certain place. Dad takes the other sibling to another place. Um, this is us actually trying to memorialize in our family. We're not together. Now, we want to talk about this with the kids proactively. We'd like to get their buy-in, and believe it or not, 
pretty common to get their buy-in because they're not real happy being together in the first place. A few good things happen when this goes on. Number one, believe it or not, they often start to miss each other and understand that um, being together um, is not a God-given right. It's something that occurs when we are getting along with each other and when the problems that are causing us to not get along have been solved. Number two, as I've already mentioned, it dramatically reduces the number of challenging episodes. Um, Number three, it gives mom and dad a break even though separating kids as sort of the way life is in our family, at least temporarily, does take some work. It doesn't take anywhere nearly the amount of work that meltdowns take. That's what never together means. In some families, we've come up with a schedule for when, who is watching TV, because we really don't want kids to even be in the same room together if they're going to have difficulty getting along, and if things are going to become physically aggressive. So part of your question was the enforceable part. We're looking as much as we can to get buy-in from your seven-and-a-half-year-old son, but we're looking to do it proactively, not in the heat of the moment, and we're looking to make this something that he's okay with, point out the advantages of it to him, Um Generally speaking, I get very, very little pushback from siblings when we start talking about what life is going to look like when they're not going to be together. And once again, it doesn't last forever. So, Kim, I'm sorry that I went on like that on that issue, but anything that you'd like to add to any of the things that we talked about in this mom's email? Um, I would probably add that... uh, love the part where you said that we're proactively going to discuss this with the kids ahead of time. And that in our, in the model's language, this would be called a proactive plan C uh, or a band-aid plan to temporarily reduce stresses, uh, you know, so that we can start working on some of the problems that uh, are setting the stage for the behaviors to occur. Um, And yeah. And I think that the enforceable part is, is also key here because whatever proactive plan C or band-aid plan that's agreed upon needs to be doable. Um, and, and I think part of the conversation when we're having that proactive conversation with the siblings that uh, towards this type of plan is to make sure that they know that they're not in trouble and that this is different than a plan A, um, you can't be together, I'm not going to allow it type of situation, that this is a, you know, it's clear that you guys have trouble getting along at different times. We need to figure out those times and work on them one at a time together. And in order to kind of get the breathing room to do that, this is what, you know, I'm suggesting. Um, But this is not that I think that you're bad or that you're in trouble. Um, This is just the way that things will get better quicker if we can uh, operate this way. Um, So I think that might be a key piece as well. Excellent. Um, Shall we move on to another one? Sure. And I did get an email from Jennifer that she's been calling, and the number is just ringing. It's not letting her do the prompt, the hitting the one. So, Just make sure she's calling 347-994-2981. It is entirely possible that I gave her the wrong number, but um, we'll find out. 
Otherwise, we may – now, you called in just fine, yeah? Yes, I did, and I called from that same email that you sent. So I think you sent it oh, correct. It. I don't know what's going on. I don't either. Hmm. Well, we'll figure Technical it out. issues. <laughs> Let's do another one. Here we go. We've got some nice ones here that really – what's nice about these questions is that they – really do help us talk about some of the key facets of the model here. But here's another one. This mom says, um, I've read so many books, Love and Logic, The Out-of-Sync Child, Whole Brain Child, Explosive Child, Strong-Willed Child, and each has helped in significant ways. But the Explosive Child is the one that seems to fit best with our eight-year-old girl. We have downloaded and filled out the LSIP and know many of her lagging skills and unsolved problems. My question is, this is great, where is the list of solutions? Could you please direct <laughs> me to some ideas of what to do next during the invitation step? I like the starting point of, I wonder if there's a way in using kid-friendly language, etc. Maybe I missed something in the book. Ideas? Thank you immensely. Well, as it turns out, we do have ideas. But, Kim, I'm going to let you take a crack at that one. Uh, I got a chuckle out of it, I have to say. That was cute. Um, So, you know, I can remember feeling the exact same way when I was learning the model. uh, And I remember that it was described to me once as um, taking an airplane trip where you're taxiing down the runway. That's the first step. You know, the, the wheels are going up. You're taking off. That's step two. And if you know where the plane is landing, if you know what's going to happen in step three, you're actually not doing the model. You're doing very nice plan A. Um, But the model, you truly don't know where that plane is going to land. And I remember feeling very unsettled by that at first uh, and then trusting that uh, the process would play itself out and that I would see the kind of results that other people had seen. And once I was able to do that, the plane landed in some interesting places I would never have guessed was going to land there. But, uh, you know, kids have some wonderful ideas and, you know, ideas that I was surprised because I had never thought of them before, but actually did meet my concerns and were doable. So we tried them, you know. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I would start with is it's not uncommon that you don't know where you're headed Uh, when you're doing the three steps, that's okay. That means you're actually doing the model Um, and you have a partner in the kid in figuring out solutions. And, um, you know, if, if your kid doesn't have any ideas, you can put some tentatively on the table and see if they're, they meet the test of being mutually satisfactory and feasible. Um, That's where I'd start anyway, Dr. Green. Let me throw my two cents in there too. And it's a little bit more technical. Um, the reason we don't provide a list of solutions is because we can't. Um, Because solutions are, by definition, um, a byproduct of the concerns of both parties. Because a solution is supposed to address the concerns of both parties. All a solution is, is an an attempt to address the concerns of both parties. So let's take a simple one like difficulty brushing one's teeth before one goes to bed at night. If we don't know what the kid's concerns are about that, and if we don't know what the adult's concerns are about that, no way that we can provide a list of solutions on that 
because solutions, once again, by definition, are a byproduct of an attempt to address the concerns of both parties. Um, so there is no the solution to that unsolved problem. Now, if we came to find out that the kid doesn't like the taste of toothpaste, and if we came to find out that the parent wanted to make sure that the kid didn't get cavities so that he didn't cost a fortune in dental bills, now we're ready to start thinking of some solutions. But what we often find in the, Kim was saying, Kim, you were saying that uh, we never know what we're going to hear in the patient and the kids come up with amazing solutions. And, um, but it's also true that we never know what we're going to hear in the first step, the empathy step, which is where we are gathering information from the kid about his or her concern or perspective on a given unsolved problem. That's, I, I probably get more jaw-dropping moments in the empathy step than I do in any of, either of the other two steps. Because as I always say, it's in the empathy step that you learn that what you thought was getting in the kid's way, making it difficult for the kid to meet an expectation, is not what was getting in the kid's way. So lots of jaw-dropping moments there. One of the big mistakes we adults make is we come up with solutions thinking we already know what's getting in the way for the kid. We already know what the kid's concern, perspective, or point of view is. And we are so often wrong. And if we're wrong about what's getting in the kid's way, then the solution that is aimed at addressing what we are wrong about isn't going to work. So we can't come up with a list of solutions to problems that kids and parents face because we never know what we're going to hear in the empathy step. We never know what we're going to hear in the defined adult concerns step. And by definition, the solution addresses the concerns of both parties. Do you have anything more to add to that one before we move on to another one? Just to say that um, wanting the solution is very much human and, I guess, adult nature. Um, if you see it in the B team all the time where people will post and say, you know, what, are, what, are you, what have you done to handle going to bed problems or what have you done to handle homework refusal or school refusal? And, you know, often people who are real entrenched in the model will say, well, that depends on, what you learned in step one and what you said in step two. And sometimes people who are new to the group don't quite get what we're saying, but um, just meaning that, you know, one solution doesn't fit all. It depends on what you learn in the first two steps um, for, to figure out where that plane's going to land. Let's do another. Um, and the call-in number, once again, if people want to call in, we hardly ever get calls on the first program of the year because people aren't used to it. And by the way, I hope people have noticed that we've changed the day. Um, it's now Tuesday, the first Tuesday of every month, not the first Monday of every month. Uh, but here we go. This is a very poignant one. Hi, I just found your website. I assume she's talking about the Lives in the Balance website. My 14-year-old daughter has been struggling forever, it seems. My ex was abusive and abused me during pregnancy, to all of us. I believe this trauma is causing my daughter's behavioral issues, but I have tried everything to no avail. She is hell to live with, and through my research, she fits the criteria for bipolar disorder. This, of course, is after all the other diagnoses as ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, etc., etc. What can I do? Life is so hard this way, a constant battle, no joy for a long time. 
Now, Kim, I'm imagining that that's not an uncommon theme that you sometimes hear in the B team, people who have been struggling for a very long time, experiencing very little joy as parents for a very long time, and possibly even attributing their child's difficulties to something that occurred historically. Um, I'm, I'm betting that a lot of the parents who joined the B team uh, can definitely relate coming from. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a very typical type of post of people asking for support <laughs> for those type of difficult circumstances. Now, let's talk about this mom's um, concerns here. It's very tempting to try to explain why a kid has behavioral challenges based on historical factors, trauma, attachment, um, other horrible life events. And um, the problem with that is that it is very difficult to say with great precision what causing a kid's behavioral challenges. It's tempting to explain it with history, but that's very imprecise. And aside from the fact that it's very imprecise, it's also very hard to do anything about some of those historical things that occurred a very long time ago. So it doesn't mean that we are dismissing horrible traumatic events that can affect a kid's life. But the way I view those traumatic events is that in some way or another, they delayed development. Trauma can delay development. Attachment issues can delay development. Uh, exposure to substances in utero can delay development. What kind of development? Development of very important skills like flexibility, adaptability, frustration tolerance, problem solving, and a whole bunch of other skills listed on the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. In that respect, what we really want to be focusing on are, once again, the skills the kid is lacking, irrespective of how the kid came by those lagging skills, and the expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting now. If all we're focused on is the trauma history or the prenatal exposure to substances, or then we're not going to be focused on lagging skills and unsolved problems necessarily, and that's what we really want to be focused on. Uh, I'm always telling people I was taught in graduate school that everything's 100% nature and 100% nurture. And a lot of the things that people use to explain a kid's difficulties now are either related to nature, which is often the gene pool, or nurture, which is environmental events. And it's not that we want to dismiss those things once again. It's just that we may not be able to do much of Oh, Dr. Green, did we lose you?
it looks like Dr. Green is having some technical difficulties, but we can pick up where he left off, and he should be rejoining us shortly. I'm back. Want to know what happened? Oh, there he is. You do the radio program <laughs> from a truck stop in western Massachusetts after you have driven your daughter back to college and didn't want to skip the radio program. What happens is you leave your cell phone sitting on your car seat, and your cell phone gets too hot. And then your cell phone turns off because it's too hot. Then what you do is you turn your car back on and you put your cell phone in front of the air conditioning vent so that it cools down as quickly as possible. Now I am back. But keep going. (laughs) It sounds like you were in the middle of a thought. Look, the the sacrifice we make to do this radio program. Go ahead. (laughs) I actually had just gotten your text, and I was just saying, oh, it sounds like Dr. Green has some technical difficulties. I actually didn't pick up on your on your thought that you were saying that um, if we focus on the historical factors, that often leads us to believe that there's nothing that we can do to help the child. Got it. So the things we can do something about are the lagging skills that are caused by those historical events and the expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting now. Those are things we can do something about. And um, so back to the question in this email, um, there's a few of them. First of all, find to think that your child's challenging behaviors were caused by the trauma. I don't know. And we'll never know that with any great level of precision. What we do know is that she's... um, almost definitely got some lagging skills and unsolved problems. We all do. What we do know is that those problems can be solved and that those skills can be taught if we solve the problems in a certain way. And that's where the CPS model comes in. So I don't know, Mom, what you've tried. I do know that like many parents who've tried everything, you now have quite the list of diagnoses to tell us what behaviors your child is exhibiting that help us know that she's difficult. But even that doesn't tell us what her lagging skills are and what her unsolved problems are. I'm thinking that if you begin viewing your 14-year-old daughter through the lagging skills and unsolved problems, and I'm thinking that if you started solving those problems with her, problems that may have been unsolved for a very, very long time and have been causing challenging behavior for a very, very long time, what I'm hoping is that you might start to find some joy in parenting again because this is something that you and your daughter do together. Solved problems don't cause challenging behavior. Only unsolved problems do. Those diagnoses aren't going to tell you what your daughter's lagging skills and unsolved problems are. And the trauma history, while it could give you something to work on with your daughter, it's not going to teach those lagging skills or solve those problems either. Here's what I'd like you to do. It looks like you are in Canada on the CPS Connection website, which is cpsconnection.com you will find a list of providers, and we have many, many certified providers in Canada across many of the provinces. I don't know which one you're in, but good care is worth traveling for. See if you can find a clinician nearby on that website, and um, 
You can always call back into the program anytime if you need more help than our answer here was able to give you. Kim, anything more to add on that? Uh, just that, you know, if, if the mother decides to make this lens shift, uh, viewing her daughter through the prism of lagging skills and unsolved problems, uh, many folks ask, should we tell our kids that we're making this shift? I actually advocate, I'd love to get your thoughts, but my answer typically is I like transparency. I like telling kids, um, you know, I've been realizing that the things we've been doing to try to help you haven't actually helped, whether that be taking away video games or limiting phone use or whatever it might be, that hasn't helped you. And I, it actually seems to have made you more mad at us. And I'm, I want you to know that I'm thinking about you differently these days and trying to figure out um, how we can better work together um, to fix some of the things that aren't going well. Uh, and I'm just learning. So, uh, you know, I'll get back to you when I've figured out, you know, our next step together. Um, but I, I just want you to know that I'm aware that some of the things that we've been doing haven't been working out so well for either one of us. What are your thoughts on Love being it. explicit with kids? Great. Well, I like being very explicit with them about the fact that there are certain problems that we could be busy solving together. I even like involving the kids in helping us come up with a list of expectations he or she is having difficulty meeting. Uh, my mm -hmm. preference is to say to the kid, uh, what, let's think about what we're getting on your case about or let's think about what you're getting in trouble for rather than here are the expectations you're having difficulty meeting. I'm a little mm -hmm. bit more careful about the lagging skills, but I do like to, but it's not a horrible thing to let the kid know, you know what, sometimes I think it's just hard for you to shift gears. You know, when, our, when we have a change in plan, I know that that's very hard for you. Or, you know what, I just think it's really hard for you to pay attention, and that makes doing homework for an hour straight really hard for you. Those are great things to say to a kid. I like saying those things way more than saying you have ADHD or talking with a kid about his challenging behavior only. We are in a different universe here, but um, involving kids in the process, this is, after all, solving problems collaboratively. Now, I don't know if we have a caller or this is one of our co-hosts calling in, but area code 781, you are now on the air. Who is this? Hi, Dr. Green. Hi, Kim. It's Jennifer. Oh, yay. Hi, Jennifer. <laughs> Hi. You guys are having I'm some glad technical we brought issues you on. today. <laughs> yeah. we, we are having some. Yes. Are, <laughs> or I should say we are having some technical issues. Program. Yeah, well, you know what? Techno technology sometimes fails, but sometimes even model originators forget that if they leave their cell phone sitting in the sun, then their <laughs> cell phone's going to cut off on them. But anyway, oh. Jennifer, I think that a good way to end the program, since we're bringing you on so late here, is yep. let's just have mm -hmm. you, this will be the last thing we do on today's program, let's have you tell us a little bit about um, what brought you to CPS. Number one, we're delighted to have you doing this with us this year. What brought you to CPS? What experiences have you had with the model? And then we'll call it a day. Sure. Well, I I have one son who has been diagnosed with, you know, an alphabet soup of some helpful and some not helpful things. Uh, and I first read The Explosive Child when he was not quite five, and we were on our way to Walt Disney World. <laughs> it was my vacation reading. So, uh, 
and I read it, and my first thoughts were, well, that's all fine and good, but there have to be consequences to his behavior. He has to understand that. But the idea that kids do well if they can stuck in my head, and it started to work its magic. Uh, Fast forward a few years, and we were in a really ugly, dark place, and the um, psychologist at his school, which he was about to get kicked out of, said to me, you should read Lost at School. And I picked it up, and I looked at it, and I thought, wait a minute, I know this guy. And I went back to the Explosive Child, and I went on to the website, and I found the B-team, and my lenses shifted 100%, and I thought, okay, this is how I need to... I need to approach everything. And from that moment forward, things have been much easier for me and for my son. It took my husband a little bit longer to get there. Um, He didn't quite embrace the idea as easily as I did, but it had been percolating in my head for many years. Um, And finally, after one night where things got really ugly between the two of them, he said to me, all right, teach me your way because my way obviously isn't working and he spent a lot of that night going through the walking tour for parents on the website and since then things for all three of us everyone in our house it's much easier I spend a lot less time in the pit I was listening to you talking about that email that you got earlier and I always describe that feeling, that hopeless feeling as the pit, and the pit lies, and the pit tells you that everything is going to always be awful. And the way out of the pit for us was a ton of plan C and a ton of self-care. And I know that a lot of people have trouble with the idea of self-care. So the phrase can be triggering for some people, interestingly. So we talk about it as supporting your own health and wellness. You support your kids' health and wellness. You support your partner's health and wellness. You support everyone around you's health and wellness. You've got to support your own, too. And the combination of supporting my own health and wellness and a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of Plan C got me out of the pit, and then I was able to move into some plan B in our house. Um, And now my son is going in. He starts eighth grade tomorrow, and he is at a school for kids with severe social pragmatic difficulty um, that is a wonderful place for him. And they operate very much on the idea that kids do well if they can, and if they're not doing well, then there's something standing in its way. And... um, It's been a really wonderful thing to have him getting at school the same thing that he gets at home, and all of a sudden this year he's found his voice. And before we even get into a conversation, uh, it was my mother-in-law's birthday, and we were all going to go out to dinner, and there's a restaurant that she'd suggested. It's one of those cook-on-your-table Japanese places. And he pulled me aside and he said, Mommy, I really don't like that restaurant. It's too loud. We have to sit at a table with strangers, and it doesn't smell good. Do you think that maybe Mm. Mame would be interested in going to Bertucci's for her birthday dinner? 
So without my even bringing it up, he gave me a list of his concerns and suggested a solution he thought would address everything. And it was a really beautiful moment. Um, You know, we still have a long way to go, but we're going there together and we're working on the same team. So it's it's been a wonderful thing. I think that your experiences and your emphasis on self-care are going to be a wonderful addition to the program. And, of course, (laughs) Tim, I think you are going to be phenomenal, too. We do have to sign off for today. Thanks to both of you. We will do this again next month, and um, I'm looking forward to it. Great. Thank you. Take care. Same here.